Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher and co-host of Grading the Nutmeg for Connecticut Explored. In this episode, we're exploring speedboat racing on the Connecticut River in the early 20th century with a visit to the Connecticut River Museum in Essex. When you visit, stop into the shop and pick up a copy of our latest issue, which explores stories about what people who are not from Connecticut thought about our state and its residents. Was President George Washington a fan? What did abolitionist Frederick Douglass think about us Connecticuts? Find out how to subscribe at ctexplore.org. Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. I'm Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored and occasional podcast host. And I'm here today with Amy Trout, curator of the Connecticut River Museum, one of my favorite spots because I love all things with a water view. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Uh, the museum is located in a beautiful spot on the lower Connecticut River, for any of our listeners who've never been there, in the quaint and historic town of Essex with its shops and galleries and restaurants. But the museum has what I'll call a 400-mile-long mission, right? Correct. Yeah, the Connecticut River is 410 miles long, so we do in interpret the entire length of the river, although we probably emphasize most the, the lower portion of the river. What will visitors see there when they visit? We have three floors of exhibits. And the first floor is about the early history of the region. And the second floor is about the resources and manufacturing and just people of the river. And then the third floor is our changing exhibition space. And sometimes if you come during the holiday season, you'll see Steve Cryan's famous model train show. And the other times of the year, we try to have rotating exhibits up there. And you can also get out on the river too, right? Very important. Yeah, we believe that you can appreciate the river most by going on the river. And so we have two vessels. One is a replica of Adrian Block's uh, 1614 on rust. And we also have a educational uh, vessel called RiverQuest that we recently acquired. And it can give all kinds of trips up the river. We do things like, uh, we just had a Cinco de Mayo cruise, but we do jazz cruises and educational cruises too. So today we're talking about the Connecticut River Museum's latest exhibition, Speed, Hydroplane Racing on the Connecticut River, 1900 to 1940. And to briefly set this up, Connecticut Explored has two stories that tell the earlier period, uh, both by Brenda Milkowski, who's Amy's predecessor curator of the museum. Uh, one is called Full Steam Ahead uh, in our spring 2009 issue, which tells about the early developments of steamboat travel on Long Island Sound, including the horrific explosion of the New England's boiler on the dark and stormy night of October 8th, 1833, just as it docked in Essex on its way from New York to Hartford. And the second story is Pleasure Boating on the Connecticut River from our summer 2018 issue, which talks about the transition from boats as working vessels to the rise of leisure time and pleasure craft. And that includes, of course, sailing. But it touches on this era of speed boating that this exhibition 
focuses on it. And both of those stories, of course, are available on our website, ctexplored.org. Amy, what was the impetus for this summer show? Well, as you said, we've done uh, and interpreted recreation on the river uh, in quite a few exhibits and programs, particularly focusing around yachting because Essex was such an important yachting center in the early 20th century. But I thought it'd be fun to sort of where traditional exhibitions end, usually in the 20s and 30s, I thought that would be a fun place to pick up and depart from the traditional story of yachting and talk about uh, hydroplane racing and outboard motor racing, which was a real phenomenal uh, event that happened all over the country. And in particular, right here in the Connecticut River, because uh, the River was the host of the 1930 National Championship for hydroplane racing. So I thought it would be a great departure, a great uh, topic to talk about all kinds of dynamics happening in the 1920s and 30s. And so 1930, of course, is, you know, right after the crash, stock market crash of 1929. So you're entering into or into already the Great Depression. So that seems like a funny time to be kind of introducing or celebrating something like speedboat racing. What was the phenomenon there? It was really the affordability of the outboard motor and the hulls for for racing. And in fact, a lot of these yachting clubs, in fact, the Middletown Yacht Club was the host for many of these. These fellows who were men of industry and very politically savvy individuals, they saw that really outboard motor racing was a way to expand their membership and a way to get more middle class and the average Joe and Jane out on the river. So it was affordability. It was the ability to get people interested in something new and exciting. This was a time, even though it was the depression, there was a lot of cheap consumer products that were now being peddled in all of the newspapers and on radio programs and such. So people were, even though it was the depression and a lot of economic anxiety, people really wanted to uh, participate in things that were new and exciting. And it was escapism as well for that period. So in putting the show together, did you make any discoveries or what, what surprised you? I was thrilled and surprised at the uh, number of women that participated in the sport. I, you know, it certainly women were in the minority of the sport. There were, for example, in the 1930 national championship race, there's over 200 male entrants and there's six women. So clearly women were in the minority, but I was thrilled to learn about them and try to do as much biographical information as I could about them and discovered that they were really pioneers in the sport as well as the male racers. I was surprised at how young all the racers were. They were all basically teenagers or just out of high school. So it was the youth that surprised me. It was the women that surprised me. And it was really the sort of atmosphere of almost like a carnival free-for-all. People just loved it. They flocked down to riverbanks and down to harbors. And it was cheap, exciting um, entertainment. What's your favorite story or object in the show? 
of being an exhibition in a museum, of course, you have objects and artifacts mm -hmm. and stuff. And then you have some wonderful vintage images and you've done a nice job telling stories of some of the people involved. So kind of pick out maybe one story, one object to, that really exemplifies what people will see in the show. Well, I think it has to be the uh, hydroplane that we have. It's called Toy and it belonged to a Westbrook, Connecticut racer named Elliot Spencer. Um, it's now in the collections of Mystic Seaport and they were kind enough to lend it to us for the exhibit. But I want, I think that's the, the standout because of its size and it really gives people a sense of the strange look of a hydroplane. When we think of a boat today, especially a classic boat, we think of how you know beautifully constructed and, and manufactured and designed it was. These little hydroplanes were really what they called flying shingles. They were very lightweight, usually made of mahogany, but it was just simply a, a 11 foot, 10 foot hull covered in canvas with an outboard motor on the back. And uh, the I think toy really is a great visual uh, representation of what a hydroplane is. So I think people will be surprised to see really what a simple little boat it was. But also uh, the story behind toy, it was designed by the wonderful Lower River boat designer named Ernie Way, Ernest N. Way. And he was designing boats all the way in the 19th century, sailing boats, small craft, dinghies, but also speed boats. And sort of at the end of his life, he was designing these hydroplanes. And so it's a nice tie-in of a designer who had a foot in both centuries, essentially, in the 19th century, designing sleek, elegant yachts to the early 20th century where he's designing uh, fast, exciting little speedboats like hydroplanes. So, you know, I think that story of the designer, the driver from Westbrook, Connecticut, a local guy, manu boat made in Essex, manufactured in Connecticut, built here at, in Essex. All of that's a really nice tie in with who we are and where we are. And what surprised me when I saw the toy the the boat is that the steering wheel is kind of flat on the base of the hull there and and when you look at some of the vintage photos you see what appears to be a very awkward way in which these were driven and you know the the position that the driver had to be in why don't you describe that a little bit yeah you know the the boats are very small so they're only some of them is 10 feet uh, long and they're very lightweight so in the weight of the boat is really in the back with the outboard motor and the driver has to almost kneel or lay on their stomach a little bit and steer with one hand and then reach back and with the other hand and use the tiller on the outboard motor for steering and, and such. So it was a kind of an awkward position and it's really one reason the women drivers were quite good is because they were nimble, small, they could fit and could be a little bit of a contortionist in there, and they could be a little more aerodynamic by leaning down so close to the boat. So interesting uh, type of racing as well. 
So you also have a whole uh, s- selection or a display of various outboard motors in the show, which will really, people who love machinery, antique machinery or vintage mm-hmm. machinery will, will really love. And I was, was commenting to you that, you know, Connecticut has such a great story of precision manufacturing. It's not necessarily known so much for products it made, although it made some some very classic ones. And we did a whole issue called uh, about the Connecticut brand a few years ago. But I was surprised to find that while we Connecticut had a role in the uh, production of uh, inboard motors, that this era of outboard motors, most of the ones you have in the show, or if not all of them, are not Connecticut made. Tell a little bit about that story. I worked with an organization called the Yankee Chapter of the Antique uh, Outboard Motor Club, and they uh, were my educational forum for me because I I was not well-versed and educated on outboard motors. But I, in researching the marine motors that were the predecessors to the outboard, these inboards, I did learn about lots of companies in Connecticut that made marine motors. Around the same time, they're making automobile motors, motorcycle motors, all these gasoline-powered motors were being made. A lot of them were being made in Connecticut and around the country. And one or two companies did try to branch into the outboard motor world. And uh, Gray and Pryor was a company in Hartford, and they did make a Hartford outboard motor. But it never took off like the uh, mass-produced ones from the Midwest, in particular, Evan Rood and uh, Johnson, um, Elto, of course, was an outgrowth of Evan Rood with uh, uh, Ole Evan Rood and Lockwood and such. So it, it is surprising, but really with so much invention and innovation going on around the country, it's really the products that could be produced the fastest, the cheapest, and being transported all over the country. And unfortunately, the Connecticut brands didn't become that, uh, the national name that, uh, that Evan Rood and Johnson and Lockwood and, and even Kale and such did. And I'm, I was wondering about that because I was doing a little Googling about, you know, what is the state of speedboat racing today? And, you know, why, why do we not have that here in Connecticut? And there, there is a, a Connecticut outboard association, although I could not find a current website for it, but they had raced as recently as as 2017 on in Thompson, uh, West Thompson Lake, and I found this uh, quote, and I wanted to read this. I, so I, again, I went looking for for what's happening in in outboard racing now, and this was a quote from 2017 from a U.S. Army Corps of Engineer New England District website, and it talked about this race in 2017. The two types of boats used are the runabout and the hydro. Drivers wear Kevlar driving suits and life jackets while racing. The standard driving position has racers crouched on their knees with one hand on the steering wheel and the other on the spring-loaded throttle. The boats skim over the surface of the water and the slightest movement affects the ride over the ever-changing water surface, while the spray from other boats, which are inches away, drenches the competing racers. The Connecticut Outboard Association is the second oldest club in the United States, and outboard racing is a family affair where the fourth generation of racers are entering the sport in the junior division. It's common to see grandfathers, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, aunts, uncles, and cousins racing side by side. 
And I just thought that was wonderful because it, it seems to show that this hydroplane racing uh, that exists today is, is very similar to what was happening in the, in the 20s and 30s. But my, my reflection when I was looking at where is this racing happening is it's on large lakes and, you know, rivers that are maybe a little bit more navigable and accessible than both Connecticut River. And of course, Connecticut doesn't have large lakes. It has lakes, it has beautiful lakes. But maybe these the sport really ended up developing in the Midwest and in places. Uh, Missouri is a big location where there's just really big lakes. So there's probably a lot of boaters and maybe a little bit bigger market. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers, we'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with a CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements, Lots of good stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. It comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Visit ctexplored.substack.com today. Yeah, first of all, that quote is great because it really does... It seems timeless. It really could describe the the hydroplane racing from the 20s and 30s. It's it's great. Yeah, you know, I also in my research met some incredible fellows who were racing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and, and on the Connecticut River. And it was really from Middletown to Aguam and sort of all over the place in between. But you're right, you know, the Connecticut River is, and rivers in general, have hazards, have floating logs, have all kinds of debris in them. So it makes it harder to uh, race. And, And a lot of the racers talked about that, the fact that the weather, the river conditions were problematic for racing. So it's true that lakes tend to be easier and also, you know, setting up races like this would be far more difficult and complicated today than they were in the 1930s. The 1930 national championship in Middletown had the racers coming from all over the country, and they didn't really stay in hotels. They they camped along the riverbanks. Now, that's something that is not really something they could do today. So these large regattas and championship races would be far more difficult to organize today in small towns, in crazy river locations or along um, choppy waters. So it makes sense that nowadays races take place in areas that can, number one, support them, the community can support them, and two, probably have the best conditions. You mentioned that one of the things that surprised you most were the women that were involved uh, in racing in this period. And also mentioned that you've been in touch with some of the families of these racers. And and that was sort of neat to hear that they participated in helping you develop this exhibition by, you know, contributing uh, stories and family materials. 
has been one of the joys of my career, honestly, as a historian and as a curator, is to talk to family members of your historical subjects. We don't get often a chance to do that when we're studying really history from the 18th and 19th century. But in the 20th century, you're lucky if you can find um, family members. And in this case, these racers were young, they're in their teens, when they're racing. So their children are still alive and their children are thrilled to find out that you're studying their, in this case, their mothers who were really pioneers in the sport. Two of the women that we focus on in particular are Loretta Turnbull, who was a California racer, and Hilda Mueller, who was from Bay City, Michigan. Both started very young Loretta is probably the most famous female speedboat racer of her era. She was supported by her father, who was a judge and a citrus grower out in California. Her boats were called the Sun-Kissed Kid because they were after the orange groves that her father uh, owned. And uh, she raced all over the country and then all over the world. She traveled to Germany and Italy. She had her own trading card. She was on the cover of a Wheaties box, and she was in the Rose Bowl parade in a riding a hydroplane made of roses. So she was very well known. She had a lot of sponsorships, um, a lot of advertising around her. Her daughter lives in Hawaii. Uh, her name is uh, Tiare, and Tiare was thrilled to find out that I was going to do an exhibit that included her mother. And she sent scrapbook memorabilia. She sent trophies that her mother won. So it was, and she came to the exhibit opening from Hawaii. That was blew my mind. It was just wonderful to work with these family members who said, you know, my mother was such a fascinating person, a real groundbreaking person. And I'm thrilled to know that you're interested in her and and promoting her history and remembering her. Hilda Mueller from uh, Bay City, Michigan, was a, she worked in a dry goods store as a clerk. She just saw an advertisement in the newspaper in 1929 that said, if you're interested in hydroplane racing, come down to the river and we were going to have sponsorships available. So she went down and tried her hand at it. She ended up a little bit of a rough start. She got a very quick tutoring session on how to run the boat. Um, When she came back, she did her little zip around and came back and didn't know how to stop the boat. So she crashed into the docks She flew out of the boat with the steering wheel still in her hands, landed on the dock, and she thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to be in trouble for wrecking this boat. But the owner of the company came up to her and said, you know, don't worry about the boat. We have lots of hauls. You're our driver. She drove so well that she said, I can teach you to stop the boat. Don't worry about that. (laughs) So she became the driver for Century Cyclone Boats for a long time and became a phenom. She just won every championship. She raced here on the Connecticut River, broke a Class A record, and continued racing really until her luck ran out. She had a a couple of bad showings around 1932-33. And, you know, a lot of these young women 
they saw sort of the end of their opportunity that was not going to go on forever. They had to, for the times, kind of demanded that you either settle down or you you really didn't have the option of becoming a professional athlete in this sport. So she ended up marrying one of her pit crew and uh, they had a family and her son, Tom, is, his name is Tom Whooper, and he was wonderful, supportive, couldn't wait to help out, sent me some trophies and memorabilia about his mom. And he came to also to see the show with his daughters. So multi-generational helping out to promote women's history. Wow, that's fantastic. How did you find these people? Some of the women, Hilda and Loretta in particular, were more famous in their era. So they actually had some newspaper articles written about them. And then recently, I would say within the past 10 or 12 years, had some historical material written about them. And in those articles, they mention, for example, Hilda was she was introduced into the Bay City Sports Hall of Fame or something like that, Eastern Michigan Hall of Fame. And so uh, in that article about that, it mentions her son. So I Googled her son and <laughs> found out where he lived, wrote him a letter. And that's sort of how I started out. I start out by writing to them and uh, just sort of saying, hey, this is who I am. I'm really interested in the history of your mother's racing career. And uh, would you be interested in helping me? And they are usually thrilled. So the Connecticut River Museum, you borrowed quite a bit from Mystic Seaport uh, Museum, which is also a wonderful water view uh, institution. I love going there as well. Does Connecticut River Museum have much of a collection? You you probably don't have a ton of storage for things like boats, but what's your collection like? We do have a, a small collection. We're not as large as Mystic Seaport, obviously, but we do share some of the same sort of historical interests. Hmm. So when I was interested in studying this, I Mystic Seaport was one of the first places I turned to because I knew they had the hydroplane toy. But I also knew they had this wonderful resource called the Rosenfeld Collection, which is a photography collection of Morris Rosenfeld, who was a marine photographer, and he did everything uh, of the period. He photographed yachting races, but he also photographed uh, the hydroplane races. And it's a wonderful treasure trove of images of the people and the machines and and the whole era of racing um, from all over the country, but mostly the Northeast. And so that's the kind of thing that I was interested in. Luckily, we had in our own collection a uh, outboard motor that belonged to a Middletown racer named Carl Winter, who was a young man who was very interested in racing. And he lived right along the river and he built his own hydroplanes and he raced with a kale engine. And we have a kale redhead, which was a very uh, not rare, but a limited edition outboard motor that was used in racing at that period. So with his little collection of trophies and photographs and the outboard motor and contacting Mystic, I said, I think I, I think we've got an, something here. I think we've got enough to really get the story off the ground and get it going. You also have in the exhibition a wonderful segment of, of newsreel. Uh, talk about that. So you have mo- moving pictures that you're showing as well of the, that's the 1930 race on the Connecticut River, right? That was a 
real gold mine that we found. It belonged to a hydroplane and outboard motor historian, and he was kind enough to lend it to us. And we snipped out about five minutes of it. It is, it's newsreel film footage of the 1930 race in Middletown. And it shows the pits. It shows the sort of campground where the racers stayed. It shows the racing itself. It shows the starting line. It really gives you a flavor of the location of the race and of the people. It's it's wonderful. It's silent. But then we do have a couple of newsreels that I found from a, a site that actually specializes in historic newsreels. And one of them is of a racer named Walter Whitgren, and he won the Sir Lipton Cup, um, which takes place in Florida. But it's nice because it's got that real period newsreel feel to it. And Walter was a racer here on the Connecticut River. He ended up moving to Connecticut and uh, living nearby and locally. And he was a, a real speed demon. He broke a lot of records. So it's a fun uh, newsreel that shows him. And then the last newsreel shows Loretta Turnbull, and she's racing out in California. But again, it's it's great because it shows the sort of female racer. And that's an, another wonderful little newsreel. So how long is the exhibition on view for visitors? The exhibit is on view until uh, early October. So it, it's you know up and running throughout the summer. Perfect exhibit to see during the summer. And we hope that people and the families can come down. We have a little kids hydroplane that children can get in and pose and hope people come down and take a selfie and put it on social media. That sounds fun. What else does the museum have coming up this summer? I know you have outdoor events and as in addition to the, the uh, on-rest tours. Yes, our, certainly our uh, on-water excursions are very popular, but you know, we have a, it's really important for people to support the museum other ways as well. And we have a wonderful event called River Fair that we have every year. This this year it's June 2nd. And it's where local restaurants have under the tent in our beautiful location right on our front lawn, right next to the river. Uh, they have wine and beer and great eats, wonderful sampling of their fare from all these great restaurants. And we have a silent auction where people can bid on great prizes and merchandise. So it's it's just a fun event. I, I'll tell you, it's hopping. Usually we get several hundred people and it's a really good time. And it, it does a good thing. It raises money for the museum. Thank you. The uh, exhibition and a visit to the Connecticut River Museum makes for a great summer day trip. I think uh, Amy has given us many reasons to, to take a trip to Essex this summer and to see this exhibition and just enjoy the beauty of, of the location. So thank you very much, Amy. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Our summer issue is now available. In this issue, we're exploring the stories of people who are not from Connecticut, but had an impact here. Folks like President George Washington, abolitionist Frederick Douglass, inventor Buckminster Fuller. We've even got a story about the Hindenburg's visit to Connecticut. Find out more and sign up for our free e-newsletter at ctexplore.org. Thank you for joining us.